usually when we hear the word end, we think of conclusion. It's the end of the trail, the end of the work week, yeah, the end of the summer. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking for, right, groaning. Uh, there was much groaning. Uh, but there's another um, less frequently uh, talked about uh, definition of the word end. End can also mean the goal, the purpose, what you're made for. The ancient Greeks used the word telos to speak of the end, and often they meant the end of something, conclusion, but sometimes they also meant the the telos of something is its designed purpose, what it was made for at the end of the day, at the end of it all, that's its purpose. And the reality is that every single one of us, if we haven't already, we're going to have to wrestle deeply and personally with the issue of like, what's, what's the purpose of life? What's its goal? Is it going anywhere? And it is personal. It becomes, what's the purpose of my life? Do I have a purpose or it can even take a more cynical turn. Is there even a purpose in life? This is the stuff of Sisyphus and like rolling the stone up the hill just so it can roll back again. Is there any point at all? Is there any end in mind? Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I was working uh, at a coffee shop down, downtown. I was reading. I was actually writing this sermon. And um, there's a man who went over to the coffee and cream place and, and he started to mix his drink and he sees the barista, she's wiping a table over here. They obviously know each other because he asks her, I assume they know each other, did you read your horoscope today? Like they were good friends. The barista answers, of course. Was it a good one, he asked. Oh yeah, always, she said. Oh, what's your sign, he asked. Leo, oh great, great sign, you bet. So I, I prep sermons in coffee shops often for exactly this reason. Real life, real searching, looking for the answers is always happening in the public square. And this little exchange of meaning seeking, and I, it might have just been for fun. They're just maybe joking around. But it's still looking at this question, is there any meaning in the universe, like in the big sense of the universe, something beyond myself that I might be able to connect my little life to the bigger story. It's as though they're saying by, by reading a horoscope that there must be more than just me. The question is really, what's the end for me? Is there meaning anywhere to be found? And people are desperate enough to read horoscopes to try to piece that together. And for some people, it's not a joke. It's like we know as humanity, we know that there's something in us that says there is meaning. There's meaning that's beyond me. There's something I can tap into that's beyond ourselves. Um, today, we're looking at the end of the book of Psalms. It's the end of our Psalms series as well. But as we come to the end of the Psalms, uh, we probably should notice that the word Psalms means, like it's, it's a Greek word, psalmos, and it means praises. Uh, as I mentioned last week, though, as we've been journeying through the Psalms, we find out that actually most of them are in the key of complaint. They are laments. They are expressions of frustration, of pain, uh, even of anger sometimes. God, where are you? They're, they're cries for justice. So is this title, Praises, is it you know, full of angst as this book is? Is it false advertising? Well, no. Because the end of the Psalms, their conclusion is on the note of praise. It's really that end of praise reminds us of the goal or the end of prayer 
In fact, it reminds us what the goal of all of life is. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his little book on on the Psalms, he he says this, uh, praises as a title is not statistically accurate, but it is accurate all the same because it accurately describes the end, the finished product. All prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry or fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It doesn't always get there quickly. No, it doesn't. Or easily. True that. The trip can take a lifetime, he says, but the end is always praise. Praises, in fact, praises, in fact, is the only accurate title for our prayer book, for it is the goal that shapes the journey. The goal, a life with God that praises and lifts him up. What if that's true? What if that really is the, sh- the shaping of the journey ends in praise? Now that question the kids ask when they're growing up, what do I want to be when I grow up? I'm having to wrestle through that myself personally, lots. And, and that question, what do I want to be when I grow up does shape our career choices. We begin thinking at it, uh, about that as young, as young kids But the same question applies to adults too. What do I want to be? What do I want to become? That question of the future and who we're going to be in it shapes how we act in the present. Eugene Peterson goes on to say this, we are unfinished creatures, ravenously purpose-hungry, alive with possibilities. For humans, the future is the most creative and most essential aspect of time. The future, what we orient our lives toward, what we intend as the aim of our life, that determines actually what we do in the present, doesn't it? And so I want to focus on this reality of the end of the Psalms. It's not just about the end of the book, but it's actually about the end, the telos, the goal of your life and mine, and actually of all of creation. So open your hearts with me as we open the scriptures. We're going to read from Psalm 150. If you've got your Bibles open with you, the Psalms are kind of right in the middle, and it's the very last one. Or if you have your Bible app on your phone, that's another way to get there. Let's look at this together. Praise the Lord. Just hit pause for a second. Hallelujah means praise. Yah, it's kind of like Yahweh, means the Lord. Hallelujah is the word in the Hebrew that's here. And you've heard hallelujah. I saw a sign driving back from Vancouver that said, hallelujah, all day breakfast. It was a thing for Tim Hortons. And I thought, that's an interesting use of hallelujah. True, we can praise God for that. I love my breakfast sandwiches at Timmy's. Anyways, that was not in my notes. Let's go back to the notes. Let's go back to the text. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the highest heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has the breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Pray with me as we begin. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless, homeless, essentially searching and never finding until we rest in you, until we come home, 
until we connect with what we were made for, a life with you, our glorious creator, savior, king, and friend, open us up to you to a life oriented to reality. Amen. This psalm, it comes to us as a summons. It's this invitation. It's an invitation to praise, but it's more. It's an invitation to be about what you were made for. It's a call to lift our eyes again to the one who made us and lift our hearts to him in praise. But notice how repetitive it is. That word praise from the beginning to the last is repeated 13 times in all. One commentator writing in 1857, he says this of the psalm, the air, he's speaking of the person in relation to God, the air of God becomes eaten up with the love of God. I love that. That's how he describes the psalmist. This person is eaten up with the love of God. He goes on. He begins every sentence with hallelujah, and his sentences are very short, for he is in haste to utter his next hallelujah, and his next, and his next. He is as one out of breath with enthusiasm or as one on tiptoe in the act of rising from earth to heaven. He's out of breath with enthusiasm on his tiptoes. Every now and again, I hear the complaint, uh, and it's somewhat valid, that the songs that we sing in church are are too repetitive. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, They are. Some of them are repetitive. We need songs like Psalm 106, that rehearse the whole story of God in detail, that, that bring us face to face with the just varied and multiple uh, elements of, of what a life of faith is about. We need Psalm 106 kinds of songs. But this song, straightforward, repetitive as it is, is ours to sing as well. And it, too, is there to shape the way that we think about worship. Because sometimes, no, often, we need a reminder not only of the end of the Psalms, but of the end or the goal of life. And it is this. It is to praise the Lord out of breath with enthusiasm, on our tiptoes in the act of praise. And so so speaking and singing this simple message out to the world, to ourselves, it's a profoundly necessary action for us. Why? Because we tend to praise, and that means to kind of honor, to speak well of, to lift up all sorts of good things. We praise sports teams and athletes, musicians, uh, brands of guitars. I mean, I could talk for a long time about those sorts of things, and that's fine, I guess, except, except sometimes these take up the majority of our hearts and minds, they rent space in our head that they were never supposed to have. And we actually end up missing out on life, on the life we were created for, the goal, the end. There's this question that an old Scottish document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, comes from 1648, it was drafted, and and it was meant to ask kids, to teach kids, and, and adults actually, about God. And it asks the question, what is the chief end of human existence? Like, what, what are you here for? And the answer that the kids learn, and our kids still need to learn this, and so do I, is this. The chief end, the ultimate goal of human existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The point of your life and of my life, these theologians who are reflecting together on the text of Scripture came to this idea, you were made and I was made to glorify God and to just enjoy God. 
Jesus' first miracle. Uh, it's recorded in the Gospel of John in the second chapter, and, um, and it seems like a, a funny place to start. But the first thing that Jesus does is a miracle. He's at a wedding. Uh, it's a big party that's going on. They run out of wine, and that's not a good thing if, if you're the host of a party. Uh, and there's these six stone jars filled with water. These would have been used for ceremonial washing in, in sort of uh, the Jewish rituals, washing rituals. And Jesus takes, of all things, that set of jars and water and turns them into wine. And apparently, it's really, really good wine. And they're confused about why the good wine is all coming out at the end of the party. And that is the first thing that Jesus uses as a signpost, as a signal to what the kingdom of God is all about. So what is that signaling? Tony Campolo, author and, uh, and, and pastor, he says it's signaling that the kingdom of God is a party. I think he's right. Yeah, someone over there. <laughs> it really is. This psalm with its repetition of praise, now, repetition of praise the Lord, praise God, is a reminder that you and I were made to be a part of this party. Now, I recognize that there's a thousand different meanings for what party means in our heads, and, uh, and this is only, and this is a very specific one. What does it mean? You know, I think of Andy Samberg's character in that ridiculous movie, Hot Rod, and I was going to act it all out, and I thought, no, that's a horrible idea. Anyways, he, he shows up with his guys. He's learning to, like, he wants to be like this daredevil on a moped, and he's trying to impress this girl. And he says, my, hi, my name's Rod, and I like to party. And, uh, and it goes around the circle, and he tells all these guys, they're, they're, it doesn't matter, I'll stop. I'm reminded <laughs> that party could mean a whole lot of things. The point of life really is to be a part of what God is doing, his kingdom. And the kingdom of God is a party. So like, what if your, the purpose of your life was actually just to enjoy God? What if that's what you were for? To glorify him, to lift him up, to honor him. What would that look like? Well, I think the rest of the psalm fills it in for us. First, who? Who is the object of our praise? Who's the one that the party is all about? See, it's never a question of if we're praising someone or something. We are a constant fountain of praise for we are love creatures. We are always loving, adoring something or someone. In his reflection on the psalm, C.S. Lewis, he, he talks about when he's kind of first coming to faith or thinking about Christianity, he really didn't understand this idea of praise at all. He, he writes this, you know, he says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. That is, unless it's like shyness or a fear of boring others that kind of shuts it down and keeps it in check. What's he saying here? Praise is not about complimenting someone else or just simply kind of seeking their approval or approving of them. No, praise is about enjoyment. It's an overflow of what we love, what we enjoy. He continues with this. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Think of Romeo and Juliet and vice versa. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors. I think he means cars there. Horses 
colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. He goes on. I had never, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge others, come and see, join in the praising. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do, or women, when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general, like, difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regard to the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. Do you see what he's saying here? We praise what we value. We really do. What about the one who is supremely valuable? The psalmist is overflowing, is out of breath with enthusiasm, on tiptoes, He knows something and sees something. He wants everyone else to know it and to see it, and it is the magnificence of God. As Lewis goes on to argue, it isn't egoism on God's part to receive our praise. See, if praise comes from our enjoyment, then expressing that praise, he says, completes the enjoyment. Lewis continues, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely doesn't merely express, but completes the enjoyment. He gives an example. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone about how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than they care for a tin can lying in the ditch. To hear a good joke and then have no one to share it with. What's he saying? It is frustrating to have discovered something amazing and not be able to share it with others. The sharing of it is what completes the enjoyment. I think that's why you share things on Facebook or other Instagram, whatever. I think part of the reason is because you know, I'm enjoying this. I want others to enjoy it too. You're praising that thing and the sharing of it and inviting others into it actually completes completes the enjoyment for us. The same is true with praising God. Praise of God completes our enjoyment of him. No wonder the psalmist calls us to join in. And a big part of what we're doing, when we gather like this on a Sunday morning, it's almost like we're, we're, we're reciting this same psalm to each other. Come and see. Isn't he good? And we're speaking that and singing that same kind of encouragement, that summons. We're actually giving it to each other and encouraging each other by our presence here, by lifting our voices. You know, when I see, when I'm leading worship here, and, and I see kids singing out loud, putting their hands up. I'm led in worship as the worship leader. It's this really cool thing that happens. One of the reasons our, our, our sanctuary is in the shape it is, is so we can actually see each other. That we're encouraging each other to praise the Lord together. Isn't that, a, isn't that awesome? Isn't that kind of fun? We need each other. And it's actually the calling of each other into worship that completes the joy for us. Let's keep doing that. So it's not selfish for God to receive our, our praise. It's actually good for us to give it. It's the healthy fulfillment of what we're made for. But maybe it's the who question. Who or what is it that my mouth and heart most easily praises? It's that who question that maybe we need to just hit, like, hit the pause button for a second and consider. 
where our own hearts are at. Let me ask a question for you. Ask this question of yourself. Do I delight in him, in God? Is there something or or someone that's competing with God for first and best in my heart? 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he puts it pretty plainly when he's writing about Psalm 150. He says, Yahweh, the one God, should be the only object of adoration. To give the least particle of praise or adoration to another is shameful treason. To refuse to render it to him is heartless robbery. Wow, shameful treason, heartless robbery, strong language. But it's true. I would put it like this, if God is God, there is no other that should be higher in my heart. And if there is, this is the moment. Right now is the time to return, to turn back. Right now you can hit the restart. You can say, God, I need to renew my allegiance to you as my first and best. Would you be the place of of the utmost of delight for me? But we might ask, how practically does that get worked out? Well, the rest of the psalm, I think, will help to show us some of that at least. Second, the the psalm shifts to answer the where question. It says, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heaven. Might ask, where is God's sanctuary? Good question. For the psalm writer, he's probably referring to the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God had chosen to to, to let his presence reside, the place where people would meet and gather, where God's space and human space would interlock and overlap. It was like the hot spot of God's presence in the world. For him, that's probably what he's referring to. Then he also says, praise him in the mighty heavens. Well, it's like the psalmist is calling the whole spectrum of the created order, the angels around the throne. Be a part of this too. He's calling everyone uh, on earth. We sang in our oh for a thousand tongues, the saints on earth and in heaven, the whole church to join in with this. But, and and this is from the point of view uh, as a Christian person now, on this side of the coming of Jesus, the place where we meet God in a specific way, well, it's not actually the temple in Jerusalem anymore. We don't need to go on pilgrimage to a ruined temple wall on the other side of the world to live this out. In fact, Jesus got into an argument with the religious leaders of his day in John 2, right after the turning the water into wine story. He's in this argument. They're looking at the temple, and Jesus says, you know what, destroy the temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And, wow, that's quite a claim. So he, uh, the religious leaders respond, obviously. They say, what have you been smoking, dude? Uh, or whatever their first century equivalent would be. They say this, it took our ancestors 46 years to build this, and you're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? And here's Jesus' answer, and it's not going to be in my quirky um, kind of paraphrase. Let me just read it. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, how many days? Three days, right? His disciples recalled what he had said then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Okay, after Jesus' death and resurrection, where is the temple? Where is the place where God's space and human space overlap and interlock? It's the person of Jesus. Our temple, where we meet God, is a person. And so everywhere that we gather, whereby the Holy Spirit, the person of Christ, is made alive in us and in us corporately as a body of believers, the church, Everywhere, 
that Jesus is, through the Holy Spirit, is a place of praise. Here's our take home. Again, this is from Spurgeon. He says, whenever we, God's people, gather for holy purposes, our main work should be to present praises to the Lord our God. Is, is that right? Is that our main job as we meet? Stated differently, our main work is not merely intellectual, to learn in community. Oh, we need to learn. But the point is to lead us to him, to a person. And that encountering the living God, that's what fires our hearts to praise. To loosely quote the theologian Simon Chan, doxology, which means the praise of God, doxology is primary theology. What does that mean? He means this. Theology, when we think of that, we think about kind of learning more about God, right? True, good point. He said the most important element, the first, the primary aspect of knowing God is praising God. We learn about God not just to know stuff, but to be in relation to him and in relation as his praising, glorifying creatures, those who are pointing to him. Third, the Psalms tell us why we praise Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. We read in the Psalms about God's creative work. We read about uh, in the Psalms how God rescued the people of, of Israel from, the, from Egypt in the hands of slavery and oppression. Those are acts of power. Those are worthy of our praise of God. But the story goes on from even what the psalmist knows. For the ultimate act of God's power, his surpassing greatness, ironically, is that God becomes a helpless little human baby in the arms of a teenage mother. He's vulnerable. He comes as a servant. He's washing feet. He's, he's, he's holding kids. Of course, there's going to be mighty deeds that he performs and mighty words too. But his ultimate act of power seems the very opposite of power to us. It looks weak and foolish God allows himself to be utterly shamed, hung naked on a cross. He dies. That's his act of greatness, of power. He dies for you. You say, how is that greatness? What kind of act of power is that? It's the power of love. It's the power that says, I will give of myself deeply all the way to death to give you what you need most. And he does. Oh yeah, he could have conquered like he conquered the, the armies of Egypt at the Exodus, he could have done that, but he did more. Through his act of self-giving on the cross, Jesus defeats the power of evil and hell itself on our behalf so we could live free and eternally with him. That, coming back to that, reflecting on that, letting that melt our hearts until we begin to see that the cross isn't a symbol of kind of a vague symbol of God's love. It's a deeply personal one. He hung, he who hung the stars also hung on a cross for you so you could be with him forever. That's what changes our hearts to let him be first and best again. So yes, we praise God in community as his corporate people, but never forget to personalize that message for yourself. Jesus died for me, Paul can write in Galatians 2. And we can all personalize that for ourselves as well. But now we come to the how. How do we praise him? The psalmist says it like this. Praise him with the, the sounding of the trumpet. It's this kind of call, this summons to come. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Play, praise him with the resounding cymbals. 
What do you hear in that? When you read that, what do you picture? I want you to take, this is, it's going to sound awkward. It's really not. You guys are all friends here, right? Yeah, we are. Okay. Turn to your neighbor and just for 10 seconds, ask them, what did you hear in that? What is that signal to you? Just take a moment and talk about that with those around you. All right, so uh, who's going to be brave from this section? Is there one person who can put up their hand and tell them what your neighbor said, what you heard them say? Yeah. Sounds like a wedding. Good one. Yeah, it does. It does. Thank you. Uh, someone from this section here, anyone really brave feeling? Loud and powerful. Thanks, Ruth. Yeah. How about over here? Using every instrument. There's no variety. St. Augustine will go on to say that. There's nothing in the variety of, of instruments that's not engaged here. Thank you. Over here. There's an orchestra. This is full of instruments. Absolutely. Anyone else up top? One more. Yeah. Amit. There's variety, there's, there's dancing. It's like, it, it's sort of, for Amit, coming from a different culture too, he's kind of hearing it from his own, you know, from a different place in the world where maybe dancing is the kind of thing that happens a lot more often in this setting. I don't know, but you're right. There's this variety, there's this exuberance, there's this life, this vibrancy. It doesn't sound like a lullaby. It sounds like a dance party. And I know, I know, I know, I know that a lot of churches divide over the lines of how music is done in church. I understand that. We're not even going to go there. We'll go here to the text of the Bible. We're going to ask, what do we do when we gather? Whatever it includes, and it includes lots of things, it'll also have to include this. Exuberant, joyful, varied, moving praise. Yes, it's going to get expressed differently in sub-Saharan Africa or in India or in Mongolia than it's going to look in some ways in Kamloops in the 21st century. But it's got to be this, exuberant, joyful, varied, moving praise. That's what it has to be. Let me read to you a quote or two from, um, everything I'm going to say now is from like the 1800s, mid-1800s or older, so you can't say that's new or that's someone trying to push some sort of new agenda on us. Not at all. Ready? Are there not periods in life when we would gladly dance for joy? Let not such exhilaration be spent on common themes, but let the name of God stir us to ecstasy. If men and women are dull in the worship of the Lord our God, they are not acting consistently with the character of their religion, that is, in faith in Jesus. Let the clash of the loudest music be the Lord's. Let the joyful clang of the loftiest notes be all for him. Praise has beaten the timbrel, swept the harp, sounded the trumpet, and now for the last effort, Awakening the most heavy slumberers and startling the most indifferent onlookers, she dashes together the discs of brass and with sound both loud and high proclaims the glory of the Lord. That's Charles Spurgeon. Uh, please remember, he's a Baptist. He's talking about dancing, okay? 
He's talking about the loudest and most joyful notes being all for Jesus, and this is the mid-1800s. What are we to give God in worship? Our best, our highest, our most joyful because he is our best, our highest, and our greatest joy. Back to the 5th century, St. Augustine, no kind of faculty. He's talking about both our body and the instruments that we use. Coming back to your comment, here is omitted. All are enlisted in praising God. The point I think that our psalmist is making is that we need to express our hearts in worship, not in sleepy, half-hearted mumbles, but with whole hearts, engaging fully and wholly ourselves in worship and praise to God. Just like we need to tune our instruments if we're to play them skillfully, and we do, and we require our instrumentalists to play skillfully, and they do, they got to practice to do their best. But it's, it reminds me of that song, that hymn that we sing, and the line there is, tune my heart to sing your praise. Maybe that needs to be your prayer today. God, my heart is out of tune. Something other than you has my best, has the center of my attention. Come and be the first again. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Make it ready to offer what you are due. One more quick word. The psalm gives voice and even vent to the whole experience of human life. So every time we gather to worship, we might not always feel like praising God in this way. We just won't. Sometimes we'll be in mourning. Sometimes we're dealing with depression or anxiety. And the last thing we feel like is this kind of exuberant praise. But to come back to where we started this morning, Praying the Psalms gives us every language for every place and situation life. But prayer does always end in praise. It might be quiet. It might be tear-soaked. It might not come right now, but it will come because God is the God of the future too. And the promise of the future is the promise of full restoration to a greater joy than we can even fathom right now. When we allow our hearts to be caught up in worship in the present, even with all the pressures that we face, we are actually leaning into our future. We're participating in the end goal of life itself, who we are created to be. We are enjoying God and expressing it in praise. And then when we praise him now, maybe even with the tears still on our cheeks, we're joining the holy roar of all of creation. The last line says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Here's our parting challenge. Not only are we engaged in the praise of God, but we want, like the psalmist does, for every tongue, every man, woman, and child on the planet to be united in praise of the one true God. Here's our last take home. A life of praise in our homes, in our neighborhood, in our community will lead us to a life of mission. For we long to see God glorified in every heart to find that the deepest joy in life, what they were made for, is a person, and his name is Jesus. For here alone do we find our deepest joy, what we're made for. We're made for him, for a person, for Jesus. Those who are going to help serve communion, I'd like to invite you to come to the front as we prepare our hearts. Now, as we gather around the table today, this is a time of remembrance, and I've talked about what Jesus has done for us already today, but he said, before he was betrayed, he took, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is like my body, it's going to break for you. And then he took a glass of wine and said, this cup, it's like my blood, it's going to be poured out for you. And so if ever there was something or someone to praise, this is it.
It's for this moment. God himself, your maker, allows his life to be unmade so that you can be remade. God himself, the creator, undergoes anti-creation. He goes through death itself so that you could be brought back to life. Now that is worthy of our highest praise and our deepest honor. There's a lot of names for the communion table, communion, the Lord's Supper. Those are really great names and they have meanings. But for most of history and for most Christians, even around the globe today, this is called the Eucharist. Eucharist um, is a Greek word. Eucharisto means I give thanks. Jesus prayed that when he broke the bread. He said he gave thanks, he broke the bread. And now because of what he has done, we are seeing yet Eucharisto to God. I give thanks. Let this be our act of praise to center our lives again around the table. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you allowed your life to break so ours could mend. And we celebrate it today as we take this, Lord, fill our hearts with praise and joy in you.